Stand by while NCLA cuts through the noise to signal abuse of administrative power. This is Administrative Static with Mark Chenoweth and John Vecchione. Welcome to Administrative Static. This is John Vecchione, uh, and I'm joined by Mark Chenoweth, as usual. Um, and I want to start off, um, this week I traveled up to Boston uh, to argue the case of Relentless versus Commerce. And those of you who've listened for a while, I don't think we've, we've talked about it that much in, in a while, but um, this is a case whereby the Magnuson-Stevens Act, uh, which governs fisheries and fishing and all kinds of fishing stuff, um, it it says that the fishing boats in the Northeast, in New England, basically, well, Mid-Atlantic too, that, that um, they have to allow observers on their boats. And these observers have a defined uh, position. They're, they're, by regulation, they have to have like degrees and know about fish biology and all this kind of thing. And you have to provide berths for them and you have to provide rooms so they can take their samples and you have to allow them to go about their duties on your ship. And this is, uh, this, that passage was passed in 1990 and everyone went merrily along and, and, uh, the observers were there and, and our clients fished and there was, uh, not a, not a big fight about it. Then, um, in 2010, for this other fishery, not not the relentless case, the um, the NOAA and uh, National Marine Fishery Service and Commerce came up with this idea that they were going to have these at sea monitors, and these were going to be people who you have to contract with them to come on your boat and watch you, and they have slightly different um, uh, they do different tasks than the observers. And that case, that case was called Gaithel, and, and that case was brought too late. And the First Circuit, which is the New England Circuit, said that uh, the statute of limitations had run. So they never reached the issue of whether you, the government could do this, charge you for the, uh, you know, people doing a government job uh, to come on your boat. So that's what this case is about. So Relentless is the follow-on case where... Uh, these at-sea monitors uh, have been defined by the agencies, and they they force you to enter a contract with these uh, at-sea monitors, who then come on your boat, and they don't they don't take fish samples. They do other things. They they do depths of the water the fish are caught at, and various other measurements. But they're not exactly the same as observers, which is what the statute provides. You're allowed to allow on your boat. Well, um, we we lost in the in the district court. The district court said, you know, uh, it's not clear in the statute whether they can charge. I, I can't really say the statute says that. And the reason he really can't say the statute says that is because the statute doesn't say that. But in any event, uh, but he says under Chevron, there it rears its ugly head again. I have to decide whether it's reasonable interpretation of the statute that they can do this. And he says. Is it, is it really unreasonable? I'll say it's reasonable. 
And so uh, he he approved it. Judge Smith uh, approved it. And uh, it's now on appeal before the First Circuit. And I went to Boston uh, this week and argued the case for uh, the appellants. And it was a very interesting uh, argument and a very interesting bench, I thought. Uh, Judge Kawada, who was on the Gaithel panel, was on this panel, and he is a very bright guy and uh, had a lot of questions for, for both sides, actually, the government as well. And the, the thing that the court can't, in the, the court's mind from these questions is something that is bugging me. And that is, they say that, well, they can require you to have certain kind of nets, right? And then you pay for those nets. And I said, yeah, of course. But how come you don't pay for the observers? And the answer to that is there's there's two there's a couple answers, but the real answer is, is that these observers are doing a government job, and the Congress ho holds the power of the purse over the agencies. If the agencies can charge the regulated parties whatever they want for whenever they want to do something that Congress hasn't funded, and the records here is clear, this is why they did it. They spent ages going, oh, Congress will only fund the observers for this amount. We want more guys on the boats. How do we do it? And then they did this whole Rube Goldberg process to avoid all the ways Congress stops them from uh, charging the fishermen um, for, for uh, the government's agents. And they create this process. And, the and, and so the, the court says, why is that any different? Well, of course, the government agents should be paid by the government. Your highway patrolman who pulls you over, he can't charge you for that service he just did you. Um, they're, they're, oh, does he do a service when he pulls you over, John? <laughs> yeah. Well, according to the government here, well, the argument here for the government was that, well, this this allows them to have fish in the sea because, you know, it's a tragedy of the commons. There's no, there wouldn't be fish in the sea otherwise. And I'm like, yeah, but they're the government's fish. The, the government is keeping the fish stocks up. We all understand that. That's why. I explained this to the court. I said, listen, nobody objected to observers on the boat. And the Judge Lippes, he asked me, he says, but didn't you say that they, they considered them a nuisance? I said, yeah, it's like, you know, like in the movie Coda that we all, that we've, we've said here and you can see on our website is, is about this sort of thing. I mean, yeah, they think they're a nuisance, but no one opposed them coming on the boats because they all know that you need somebody to take these, these measurements and do various other things. So no one opposed the statute. But no good deed goes unpunished, Mark. And so they don't oppose the statute that says observers may go on the boat. And there are other parts of the statute that say observers can be paid by um, fees or by contracting in these three circumstances, right? So there's even parts of the statute that allow this, but not here and not now. And um, and so the thing is, but the, the First Circuit said, well, Said, it says there could be observers and it doesn't say who pays for them. So isn't it a reasonable interpretation the regulated pay for them? And I said, no, <laughs> it isn't. And I said, but if, if you, even if you get there, even if you get to Chevron, everywhere Congress allows this, if you, don't, if you don't use these other sections to say that these guys can't be paid by the fishers in this section, then you should at least use, use the, the measurement of reasonableness that is what Congress does, which is capped any of these observer fees at two or 3% rather than the 20% that we have here. So, um, well, I don't even understand why you'd get into the reasonableness debate, John, because it seems to me that as a matter of statutory interpretation, 
which is not Chevron step two reasonableness. It's Chevron step one. What's the meaning of the statute when you apply all of the traditional tools of statutory interpretation? You can't possibly interpret the statute to order something where it's silent in one section where Congress has been very explicit in another section to allow it. The, the very fact that Congress has been explicit where it wants to allow it tells me that silence doesn't have meaning in this other part of the statute. Well, yeah, it tells me that too. But Judge Lispiz said, Mr. Vecchioni, assume we're getting to Chevron step two. <laughs> but then, and, that, and he didn't think I'd answered it well enough in the first shot. But then this is the other how part. About, how about then assume you're getting reversed on appeal, Your Honor? Here's the, here's the other part that was, that was interesting. So then the government gets up and the government is, uh, as Mark Twain said, probably feeling like a Christian with four aces. And she gets up and, uh, well, they ask her, first they say, oh, for the reasons you just said. So now they take the other side because this is their job. I mean, obviously. And they say, sure. how you keep saying this thing clearly allows this. Well, how come you had to, to like cite seven, I think just with seven or eight different sections to get to your idea that this is clearly allowed. And so they, they whacked her around a little bit on, on whether it was clearly allowed, but they, they were going to step two and they asked her about step two. And, and then judge Lippes didn't think that she'd answer the question either. So, um, but then they go to the other, the second part of our argument is that our clients are being treated differently. The, the way the statute works, our clients cannot get out of having these at-sea monitors paid for by them if they declare for herring because their trips, because they, they're a freezer outfit and they, and they, they uh, go after different types of two kinds of squid, butterfish and, and herring. And so if they declare for herring, even if they take less herring, less than 50 metric tons that, uh, because uh, per day, because they're taking it per trip and their trips go two weeks, all these other ships can take 50 metric tons and have two day trips and they can take like magnitudes of herring more. And there's a cap on herring. You cannot take more than the what's called the ACL, uh, which is the it, it's the limit of taking fish so that they still can breed and, and replenish themselves. And so no one can ever take more herring out. It's just a matter of who's going to take it. And I, I have to say this. The First Circuit kept asking the government, how can you explain this? I mean, and, and I did love what Judge Lippis said. He says, I mean, your answer, I read the briefs, your answer is tough luck. <laughs> he said, <laughs> how, is, how is that an answer? <laughs> so um, well, so nobody... No, nobody got away unscathed from from the First Circuit um, in this instance. Uh, I'm I'm looking to see. Uh, I, th I think it's going to be very interesting how they come out. But uh, because Judge Coada was on there, I had to directly deal with his concurrence in Gaithel, and I told him why I thought he was wrong, which is never a comfortable feeling for a uh, <laughs> for a litigator. <laughs> but I th I thought he does it well. As I said, he's a bright man. He knows how these things are done, and. Um, and uh, and it and it and it was my first appearance in that in that court uh, in person, and it is absolutely beautiful looking over Boston uh, Harbor, all with still fishing boats there, which made it nicer than I think uh, the Loper Bright people who have another case in D.C. have. Where uh, I didn't get to use my line, I never used it, Mark. So I'm going to say it here, which is that, that the D.C. Circuit came out the way it it did because it's iconic 
uh, product is bureaucrats and they support that. But your iconic product is fishermen and you should support them. <laughs> but I, didn't, I didn't say that. Well, maybe next time. So we'll be back. Welcome back to Administrative Static. So uh, John's oral argument in Relentless wasn't the only oral argument that took place uh, on Tuesday for the for the new Civil Liberties Alliance. I guess I guess you could say we have arrived, John, when we've got oral arguments in two different circuit courts of appeal on the same morning uh, simultaneously. Uh, but in any event, uh, our colleague Rich Samp and I were down at the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit in New Orleans for the en banc oral argument in Cargill v. Garland. Michael Cargill is our client who owns the Central Texas Gunworks in Austin, Texas, and is challenging the legality of the ATF's ban on bump stocks. And you followers of the program will know that uh, we lost that case at the district court level and at the panel level, uh, but we we took solace in the fact that the Fifth Circuit agreed to rehear the case on bonk with all 17 active judges uh, of the Fifth Circuit uh, there to to hear the case. And and John, it wasn't just all 17 active judges, but one of the active judges who was on the panel uh, retired at the end of August. And so it wasn't there. <laughs> so it was, uh, uh, but, but I have not been at a en banc argument that had that many judges uh, before. And it might be about the upper limit of what uh, it, you could reasonably yeah, I, accomplish. I always thought it was 11. Yeah, I always thought it was like 11. That's the Ninth Circuit. The Ninth Circuit takes a panel. They take a random draw. But uh, in the Fifth Circuit, all the active judges are, are, are up there, and there are 17 of them. So it was uh, uh, it was quite something to behold. And, and Chief Judge uh, Priscilla Richmond uh, oversaw uh, the argument. And uh, and Rich, our, our colleague Rich Samp, uh, started off uh, the argument uh, very well, talking about uh, the points that that we wanted to make. That, look, this is a this is a statutory interpretation case, and we want the government, uh, or we want the court rather, to look at these terms all together. Right? There are two terms that are really the focus of concern. One is automatically, uh, whether or not the weapon shoots uh, automatically, uh, uh, you know, more than one bullet with a single function of the trigger, and then uh, and then the single function of the trigger is the other other term, what counts as a, as a function of the trigger. And, and Rich wanted the court to recognize that it's automatically shoots with a single function of the trigger because the government keeps trying to take these, these terms apart and say, well, here's our definition of automatically, and that's reasonable. And here's our definition of single function of the trigger, and that's reasonable. Therefore, if you put them together, it's reasonable. Well, that's a nice party trick. But the problem is, that when they do that, they ignore the fact that they're using automatically to to sort of modify uh, the wrong thing uh, in in one sense because they're trying to suggest that a bump stock works like a machine gun when it doesn't, and I think the court caught on to that uh, pretty quickly. In fact, 
one of the one of the themes, John, of the oral argument was that there were several judges uh, and it, who at least appeared. And I would put uh, Judge Duncan and Judge Ho in this camp, for example, maybe Judge Oldham. There were judges who appeared to want to say, look, in a semi-automatic weapon, the trigger resets every time you pull the trigger. So the trigger functions once for each shot and it resets once for each shot. And that's true. And if you were in pretty much any other uh, court in the country, that argument alone would probably suffice uh, to win. The fact that a semi-automatic trigger resets once per shot means it's not automatic. The problem is that there was a Fifth Circuit precedent called Camp in which someone had rigged up a, a kind of like a fishing rod a reel uh, into their trigger mechanism, uh, John, and and was using that. And the court said in the Camp case that even though the trigger reset once for each shot fired, uh, that it was really an automatic uh, kind of, of shooting the way that that Camp had had rigged the gun. And so that now you're in front of an en banc court. And so the en banc, if the en banc court wants to revisit Camp and wants to to clarify that the situation there doesn't necessarily apply here, or maybe even the court was wrong in Camp in its its interpretation, obviously the en banc court uh, is free uh, to do that. Uh, but Rich did a good job of, of showing the court that there was another uh, path to victory here. And that path to victory is, is saying that uh, even if you want to say that what happens in camp is automatically uh, setting in motion a, a, a sequence of shots, what's happening with a bump stock is not automatically setting in motion a sequence of shots. And there was some misunderstanding. I think it was Judge Southwick at the beginning of the oral argument said, uh, well, so isn't it true that once you pull the trigger, all you have to do is stand there and hold the gun? And Rich was uh, Rich disabused him of that notion and said, no, 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 you have to put forward pressure on the stock of the gun and you have to overcome the recoil with each shot. Each shot fired, there's substantial recoil that happens with a rifle and you have to overcome that and push forward on the gun. And, and Rich was demonstrative with his uh, with his uh, hand gestures showing you had to push forward on the fore stock of the rifle in order to overcome that, uh, that recoil. And, 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 you know, and I don't know whether all of the judges picked up on that or not, but uh, judge Elrod uh, jumped in and said, so, so that that's why you're saying that you have to have two hands that with a, with a, with a, a fully automatic machine gun, you can operate it with one hand, but with a, with this bump stock, you really have to have uh, two hands because you have to exert this forward pressure with, with each shot. And Rich agreed with that, said, yes, that's right. And, and so that's I think, not automatic. That and means that's not automatic. Physical. In fact, it's the opposite of automatic. It's manual. It's your hand. <laughs> yeah. And I do have to say, though, that case you just mentioned, I, I got to assume that's from Texas. Somebody said, I, I have a fishing rod and a .306 machine gun time. <laughs> and, and, and that says Texas more than Mississippi or Louisiana to you? <laughs> I did, I did think that. <laughs> I think uh, I don't know. It could be any one of the above. Yeah, but, it's true. I'm not ruling anyone out, but I did. <laughs> I did find that fact pattern great. Yes, yes, it is. Uh, it's an amusing fact pattern, but you know, bad facts make bad law sometimes, yep. and and it could yep. be that that in stretching the statute to cover what was a, a kind of a ridiculous fact pattern in in camp, uh, the the Fifth Circuit panel in that case may have done some violence to the statute because uh, Judge Duncan and some of the others kept coming back to the statute and saying. Well, but it's not the shooter who automatically shoots. It's the weapon 
under this statute. And he said, I'm not going to make you diagram the sentence. I, I, I think he said this to the government. I'm not going to make you diagram the sentence, but isn't it, isn't it the shooter who's this, or I mean, isn't it the weapon that's the subject of the sentence and not the shooter that's the subject of the sentence? And the government, the government agreed uh, with that. And, and I think what Judge Duncan was saying is that the weapon doesn't automatically shoot. There's nothing about the weapon that is automatically shooting. There, there's this method, and, and Rich was and Rich was clear about that too. That that bump shooting is something that can be done with or without a bump stock. That a bump stock um, might make it a little bit easier uh, to bump fire than one can do without a bump stock. But there's nothing about a bump stock that makes the process automatic. Uh, there, there was this discussion about the Aikens accelerator, which was the original bump stock, which had a spring in it. And with the Aikens accelerator, because of the spring, the, the, the force of the recoil of the weapon when you fired it would compress the spring. And then the spring would naturally unleash at the end of the recoil, and that would force the gun forward. And so rather than have your hand pr- uh, providing the forward pressure to, to force the gun forward, and thus back into your trigger finger, the spring was doing that work. So in an Aikens accelerator, you really could press the, the, the lever of the trigger one time, and it, would, and it would go back, forth, back, forth, back, forth, back, forth in an in a, you know, arguably automatic way. But that's not true for bump stocks that are non-mechanical, that don't have uh, any kind of a, uh, of a spring in there. And I think the court understood that, uh, that point uh, pretty well. Uh, John, I think that came, I think that came uh, across. Um, one of the, uh, you know, one of the other points uh, that uh, uh, that I think was tripping up uh, some of the judges was this uh, this this idea that well, I, I talked about, you know, is the is the shooter the object, but also what's the trigger? Is the trigger the, the, the lever is the trigger, what you're doing with your forward hand. Maybe if you're just holding your finger in front of the trigger or you put a metal post in front of the trigger and then you're, and then you're putting the forward pressure with your other hand, maybe your other hand becomes the trigger. But the, the court was quick to pin the government down and say, What's the gov- what does the government think is the trigger? And the government conceded that it's the metal lever uh, is the trigger. And the reason why that is significant is because one of the theories propounded by the district court in this case. And remember, when you're when you're in front of the en banc court, you're not arguing about the panel decision because that's already been vacated. You're arguing about the district court decision. And, and the district court decision had had sort of made this point that, uh, that that maybe the trigger is what you're doing with your your left forehand. Now, even in that case, again, it's you have to exert forward pressure with each shot. So I think I think we could still prevail on that. But the district court had had a sort of a, a factual finding, uh, I guess you would say, uh, John, uh, that uh, you know that that it that it didn't really that the gun didn't really work that way, and so there was quite a discussion between uh, and and Rich said, "Look, this is this is one place where we think that the the district court was clearly erroneous," and he pointed to the to, you know, to the trial evidence as well as the administrative record. And, and just to even explain, the, Mark, yeah. a factual finding of a district court, the standard is clearly erroneous. They, the, the appellate court can't look at it anew. It has to be so wrong that they, they can say, look, that can't be right, and they can overturn it only on that grounds. That's why you use that. That's right. 
That's right. And so I think that, that Rich did a good job of explaining why it was clearly erroneous and pointing to places in the record. Uh, interestingly, near the end of the government's argument, uh, Judge Higginson uh, jumped in and said, uh, you know, counsel uh, for the government counsel, is there, is there any example anywhere of a conviction being overturned you know, based on Mr. Cargill's interpretation uh, of the statute. I mean, this idea that that uh, that this that because the trigger resets once with each bullet fired, uh, that somehow it's not a machine gun. Is there anywhere that that any state has overturned a conviction uh, on this uh, on this ground? And uh, and and uh, he said he's the government said no, he wasn't aware of one. But there's a federal case. It's Alcazag in the U.S. Navy Marine Court of Appeals. So. Uh, it was fun that that came up as well. We'll see what the uh, what the Compact Court wants to do. Stay tuned for more right after this. Okay.